I know Jasmine Scott as, uh, first and foremost, my daughter. She is my oldest daughter and my middle child. And turns out that she is the one that, um, out of my three children, probably spent the most amount of time with me in art spaces. I see Jasmine Scott as an equity change maker, first and foremost, because she comes from an environment of service first. And within that uh, service first concept, um, there is serve your people first whenever possible. So this has led to her inclination to work in spaces where people who look like her and have been marginalized and are in need of the most support. That's where she tends to gravitate. Um, I think that uh, Jasmine also understands that equity is kind of a new age way of thinking about power to the people. Essentially, it's a power to the people kind of concept, which comes out of the you know, Black Panther movement um, for the most part. But when you have a passion for your people and a desire to be a part of making sure that your people are whole, um, you lean completely into the act of restoring that power. And so equity is really about restoring stolen power. It's not about how many people of color sit on your board. It's not about, you know, how many people of color you reach in your programs. It's about who's making the decisions and that those decisions are being made through a lens that restores power. So that's how I see Jasmine's function as an equity change maker. My name is Vivian Phillips. Welcome, you guys, to Equity Rising Season to have an amazing guest with me today. Jasmine Scott is in the building. So we're going to do this in person for our first time this season. And I'm excited for it. Jasmine, thanks so much for joining me. Yay. I like in person. <laughs> Tired of Zoom. Yeah. <laughs> hey, we've been on Zooms and getting Zoomed out. I agree. So the fact that, you know, you work right down the street and we're in close proximity makes it easy. Yeah. 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 We're going to start with our first things first. We love to ask everyone this question. How are you taking care of yourself right now? That's a great question. And it made me actually think about it, too. And one of the things that I've been trying to put into practice is just like being intentional about setting boundaries, Mm -hmm. just like not even with other people, of course, with other people, but more so like with myself. You know, we work from we've been working from home for the most part for over, you know, a year and a half. And that makes things really hard. Right. Where you just work. You can just end up working, working, working and not really paying attention to like taking a break, stopping at a certain time, not working on the weekend, you know, things like that. And so I've been reminding myself to put limits on not overworking myself. And at the times when I have to, then I try to look ahead at my schedule and see where I can take a half a day off or a day off. Well, you know, take some time off to give that time back to myself to just do nothing if I don't want to do anything or do things that don't pertain to work, mm. you know. And so one of the other things along with that is that I've started back like just thinking about like my overall like well-being. And so I'm um, getting like body work done. <laughs> and I know that nice. sounds weird because people think like body work or you getting plastic surgery. No. <laughs> Not that. Body work in terms of like, you know, massage therapy, cupping, you know, like alliance, spinal alignments, things like that. Mm-hmm. Like, you know what I mean? Like, you, because 
also like when you're working too much, you're not really paying attention to like how you're taking care of your body. You know, my posture when I'm always sitting at the like the kitchen counter working or whatever, all those things kind of and your sleep patterns, too. And so that kind of throws you all out of whack. So I'm getting back into like making the time a couple of times a month to get that kind of stuff done so that, you know, I can maintain a little bit of myself is, you know, we're not, we're not so young anymore. <laughs> so, you know, we I feel young in the mind, but yeah, this body's like, girl. So you start to feel certain things. Yeah. 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 Cracking and stuff. <laughs> so I want the stuff to crack in the right way. Yeah. Oh, I love that. And it's the first time that, you know, we've heard somebody respond in that way. I think it's so mm. important. You know, when we talk about paying attention to the body. I think you're absolutely right that there's this this thing that's happening. And I think that it's really benefiting companies and the institutions and stuff we work for because it's harder to really take those breaks when you're in the comfort of your home. It's yeah. very different yeah. um, than, you know, you actually having that, those like, two 10-minute or 15-minute breaks that are embedded in your schedule. And, like, folks like, no, get away from your desk or right, right. go take that walk or go out for lunch or whatever. It's very different. And so um, thank you for sharing that because I think yeah. it's, really, it's really beneficial for us to kind of hear how people are doing it and really— with regard to the best that we have here on Equity Rising, it really is about showcasing equity change makers, yeah, right? So yeah. so there's so many different ways that that shows up in our lives and, and, and the ways that we practice it, that it's, it's for majority of our guests, it's not about just the job they do. Yeah. It's about who they are. And so the way that you approach certain things is very specific. And so thank you for sharing that. I'm glad you're getting some you time. Well, and the reality is, is that if I'm not good to myself, then I'm no good to the rest of you guys. And so much of what I do is for public benefit, right? It's not about me. So if I'm in a bad space, oh, it's clear. (laughs) You know, if I haven't, if I'm not getting the right kind of rest and sleep and, you know, balance in my life, then it um, shows up in the way I perform. And so I don't want that to be the case. And so I have to make sure that I'm making space for myself personally, so that I can be the best me for y'all. There we go. <laughs> there we go. We benefit yeah. from it. Yeah. Thank you yeah, for I'm that. trying. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to dive right in here. You know, I want to make sure really the audience knows who Jasmine Scott is, what it is you do. Just tell the audience a bit about yourself and the institution you work for in the, in the ways that you're kind of providing equity right now to the community. Yeah, so I'm the Director of Programs and Partnerships for Langston, the nonprofit which is housed in the Langston Hughes Performing Arts Institute. Hopefully your listeners know the difference by now. We've been around as a nonprofit. We're going into our sixth year, sixth year, I believe. I think we're hitting year six in October. So yeah, like we've we've been doing this work and and the nonprofit was really created out of community giving feedback to the Office of Arts and Culture about what they wanted to see happen in the historic Langston Hughes building. The Office of Arts and Culture operates that building and they made a decision some years ago that they would no longer do the programming, the primary program in this space, and really hand that over to the community. And so the way that they did that was to have the community basically develop this nonprofit. So Mm -hmm. over 
several years, about three years, it was a process of different people in the community adding, you know, their voice to shape what Langston is. And of course, you know, it's taken on so much more since we started our work in 2016. And so we we hopefully are just kind of continuing with what those folks had initially intended and doing even more. Our tagline is cultivating Black brilliance. And so that's really at the root of everything that we do. We're here to amplify Black voices, Black artists, audiences. We really cater and center them and and the artistry and the brilliance of Black folks. And it's not just art, it's Black art and culture that we focus on. And so it's also making sure that we're providing programs that also speak to other needs in the community, health and wellness, you know, that general well-being. Some of our programs make sure that we, we try to have we address those types of things. We, you know, do a collaboration with Sierra Sisters for World Cancer Day and focus on Black women and uh, metastatic breast cancer. You know, gosh, you know, we, we include health and wellness in our annual We Out Here Festival that we celebrate during the week of Juneteenth. And so there's just a lot of ways that we try to make sure that we're uplifting Black folks and keeping Black folks at the center of everything that we do um, and maintaining the legacy of what the Langston Hughes Performing Arts Institute was really kind of created for, which I know we'll talk about a little bit later. Well, yeah, I mean, that's exactly what helps me get into the next kind of question here, because when we think about um, that legacy, right, you have been, you know, a part (laughs) of it for a really long time. So how did you get to this place where now, you know, you're working for Langston and, you know, a bit of your background that really makes you such an amazing person to be in that specific position? Yeah, I I mean, (laughs) sometimes I'm just like, look at God, look at how God works, because, yeah, like I'm a Langston baby, which, you know, so many of us that are from this community are. And, you know, we, we grew up coming in and out of that space. And so, you know, I've told you this story before. It's probably been on, you know, different iterations of different things that I've done with you. <laughs> but kind of in short, you know, I mean, my 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 parents had my sister and I involved there as like school age children, you know, when it was run by the parks department and they would do like summer like day camp. We were doing day camp at Langston Hughes. And then in the early 90s, my mom was like, this girl got it. She needs something to do. And Steve Sneed was the director for many, many years at Langston Hughes and is also really good family. And today's his birthday, by the way. Uh, Happy birthday, Steve Sneed. I know this is going to air later, but shout out to Steve. But he's a really close family friend. And my mom was like, put Jasmine to work. Mm -hmm. And so starting at the age of 12, I was working at Langston Hughes every summer. And so, of course, at 12, you know, they were paying me under the table kind of thing. It wasn't like a real job. But of course, at 12, I was like, I got a job. (laughs) I'm making my own money. And so that started. And then I think by the next year, I was eligible to actually work in like what was like the YES program and summer youth employment and things like that. So I could officially work there. And so I worked there every summer throughout my teens and also just kind of on call, you know, when needed, you know, if it was throughout the school year, after school, things like different programs, you know, I would go and work. And so, you know, Langston Hughes is really at the foundation foundation of like who I am professionally. <laughs> like mm. that's where I learned how to 
work, like have a job, take some direction, work in a professional setting. But also in in the same token, like work in a, in a professional setting that was also really, really rooted in community. And, you know, that's just how I was raised. Like, I, you know, I, my mom always had me going around to everything that she did. And so, you know, I was like a community child, you know, at different, you know, all the festivals, all the events, all the meetings, all the, you know, the things that weren't so fun, but it really gave me that exposure, you know, to what community looks like and why it's important, you know, that we have all these people. And, you know, there was always people, whether I liked it or not, that were looking out for me in the community. You know, when I was trying to be bad, it was obviously not what I wanted, you know, because I was getting told on. But, you know, in retrospect, it's like, you know, I don't see as much of that anymore. And so it feels really blessed to be able to look back and say, man, when I was running around here in the Central District, there was always somebody that was making sure that I was okay. And a lot of that started with the time that I spent at Langston Hughes. Mm -hmm. And so that carried on, you know, even beyond my kind of teenage years, I always kept a relationship, you know, with that place and some of the, you know, important programs. And so I would come back, they would ask me to, you know, come help with the film festival, you know, different fundraising programs and things like that. And so, you know, I was just always involved. And so when this transition began to happen, I, I was really paying attention to what was going on with the Office of Arts and Culture and what they were doing with Langston Hughes, kind of how that shift was happening. And so when they finally made the decision that they were looking to hire basically their uh, on contract, a program manager, somebody to start the work of the organization. Mm -hmm. So after they kind of figured out, okay, this is what we are, this is what we're going to do. They had a board of directors who kind of had an outline and then they were like, we need somebody to do it. And so, you know, that, that call went out and I went and interviewed and was like, who else are you going to hire? <laughs> <laughs> like there's no, you know, I, who, 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 but me, you know, that was my approach. And, you know, and I, and so I went through, of course, all my experience and of course, you know, some of these stories, but it, it, it only made sense, not only to me, but I think everybody else, that I'd be the one to come in and get that work started. So in 2016, I came on on contract to start the work of Langston. And so I was basically like the only employee for a year and a half until we hired our first executive director, Tim Lennon. And Tim and I have been working really closely ever since as a as a small but mighty team. And we actually just made another hire, <laughs> which will be announced. But we just made another hire recently. So, you know, we're a team of three now after so many years. And so we're slowly growing. But that evolution has just been amazing. You know what? I got to say, I, it doesn't, it amazes me every time. I don't care how many times I hear iterations of this story, right? Like, you know, I, I was so excited because, you know, having you on other platforms and stuff, I said to you, Jazz, when you come onto the podcast, we're going to do the deepest dive. We're going to get into it even more. We're yeah. going to go even longer. Yeah. And I think that, you know, you are so fitting for it. But it's not just about the past that you have with Langston. It also connects to your parents. Yeah. I mean, you really come from a legacy in terms of your family of people that have really been rooted in arts and culture yeah. with their own careers and their passion 
passions and the ways that they were so connected to community. Let the audience know a little bit about the history and legacy you come from. Yeah. That got you to where you are today. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a trip. I mean, to you know, it, it's a trip for me when I hear, sometimes when I hear other people talk about, you know, my parents and my family, you know, because it's just like, this is just how I grew up. That's just my mom and my dad, you know, whatever. But it, it, it's it's really awesome. And it, it really is because of them, you know, that I am who I am today and, and where I am today. Right. So I'll start with my mom and I, I never know how to just fully describe her, her magnificence. <laughs> but my mother is, you know, people call her a, a arts instigator kind of to general, you know, to, cause you can't, there's so many, there's so many things that she does. She's a consultant. She's a I mean, she's just, she's just the shit. I don't know, you know, but she's been involved in the local arts scene for, you know, over 40 years. She, and in the community as well, just like grassroots community work and arts, right? So that, that intersection, which is, I, I have to make sure that I talk about because that, that's what's also like, that's what I do, right? Like there has to be that intersection of like, arts and community and especially when we're talking about like making sure that black people have a voice and black people have a platform like you can't do one without the other I don't think and and she really you know provided that example for me so I mean she you know I remember when I was really young she was a part of this organization called 101 Black Women she's been obviously in radio she was in radio for a few years in the late 70s on on air she has done television broadcast she did a t- a local television show for many years I think while I was in high school called True Colors with Enrique Serner do you remember yeah. him I think it was like Channel 5 or something yeah. like that great show and gosh she she has also you know produced she's a theater producer arts producer so when you know a lot of people have a lot of nostalgia around like the Maafa Suite and Sankofa Theater she was the producer for those productions in the early 2000s when when we put those on the Seattle Theater Group. She was the director of communications for the Seattle Theater Group. She even was an interim director at Langston Hughes for a while when they were doing a bit of transitioning. You know, she's boards, 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 boards. She was the president of the Arts Commission for a while. Seattle Arts Commission. I mean, I don't know. She, right now, she she has a podcast with Marcy Silman called Double Exposure, which is awesome. So they they take deep dives into arts, not only locally but nationally and internationally. And they're just a, they're an awesome pair too. Because <laughs> Marcy, if people don't know, she was on K uh, KUO. W for a really long time. And then my she also just recently launched her website Art Noir where again it's a, it's all about black art locally, nationally, internationally. She highlights artists of all disciplines from all around the world with some local spotlights as well. I mean, and there's some big stuff happening with Art Noir in 2022, which we won't get into today, but just keep that that name, Art Noir, on your, on your minds. And so, yeah, like, I, you know, I'm her middle child. And so 
I was the one that was just with her all the time. Still, today, like, that's my BFF. We live three blocks away from each other. And so, you know, we're, we're always together or we're texting or emailing or downloading with each other and just bouncing things off of each other's heads contributing to each other's work, you know, you know, with me being grown and kind of being a little bit more established in my career now, you know, she's able to come to me too. And so that's really special um, to have that type of relationship with somebody who, you know, people think so highly of. And I'm like, well, I got it honest. So (laughs) that's dope. And then, of course, my father was in radio for his career in radio spanned over 30 years. He started on the radio as a teenager. So I think he was about 15 years old when he was in high school. And, you know, I remember telling that story with you on the Morning Update show, so I won't get into all those details, but because there's so many details that I can't even keep track of. But, you know, he he was able to start kind of with a like a high school radio program. And then, you know, he was able to get in the door with, you know, a few different radio stations. He was known for being on KYAC, which of course is no longer a station anymore, but that was the black radio station in the 70s. And then it switched actually to KFOX, which was the station that we listened to when we were growing up in the 80s. And he was on air. He was a he was an on-air personality and he also did, you know, like back-end marketing stuff as well. And he is known as the first black on-air personality in top 40 radio um, in in Seattle and maybe even this region. I'm not positive. So he's very, you know, known for that and kind of blazed the trail, as they say, for a lot of other radio disc jockeys that came after him. You know, Nasty Ness, who I call Uncle Ness, for folks, you know, that grew up in our area era, remember him. And he always attributes so much of his career to my dad because he was young and coming up and listened to the radio, looked up to my dad, and then my dad was able to mentor him. And then he went on to launch, you know, his hip hop shows and everything on KFOX and do all the amazing things that he's done. And so my dad kind of opened those doors for Black people and people of color to be on air on the radio. So he did that for his entire life. Unfortunately, he did pass away. Gosh, it's been years. It was uh, 1998. So he was only about 45 when he passed away suddenly. But he did live his entire life doing what he loved, which was radio. And so, you know, again, with that growing up for me, I got to do commercials, (laughs) commercials, <laughs> you know, so I got to do voiceover work as a kid. We got to go to all the concerts because he got all the, you know, the tickets to the, so I, you know, growing up, I saw everybody, Janet Jackson, you know, New Edition, Bobby Brown, Jody Wiley, Troop, like all the people that we listened to when we were kids. I was, I'll be sure my, who I loved growing up. All the people that we listened to, you know, I got to be at those concerts as like a 10 year old kicking <laughs> Because of, of, of what my and, and meet, you know, local celebrities and stuff just through just through the work, you know, that my parents were doing. So, you know, that was just the norm, the norm growing up for us. Oh, the norm. I mean, it's so amazing. It's like art elite in the black community. I mean, it literally is. It's like, you know, you can't I, I, I can't describe how dope that really is. Right. And like and and what 
you know, all of that really produced because I get to see you now on this side of it, right? In community and staying so engaged and connected. And you have a history before Langston that also had you connected to community doing events. I know we talked a little bit about you working at the Atlantic Street Center. And that's a place where my mother also worked. So I understood this. It's such a institution in our community. And, you know, let's hear a little bit about your beginnings because that was like, you know, you cementing yourself in in your career and really starting this path on your own. Yeah, so I was with Atlantic, prior to, you know, my work at Langston, I was with Atlantic Street for 13 years, so I spent the good bulk of my 20s and 30s, (laughs) you know, at Atlantic Street Center and was really able to, you know, kind of grow within that organization. And that's a historic organization that's over 100 years old. And, you know, they primarily focus on serving African-American and other families of color. They're a social services agency, and so they're not arts focused. They, you know, are, but that's where I got like the community. I got to really, really, really be involved in like touching the community through the work that I did. So I did a number of, I worked a number of programs within Atlantic Street Center, but the way that I was able to kind of like bring in the arts, my passion for the arts into my work was through some of our like one-off activities and, and things that we do, especially with either in the community or with youth. And so one of the things that I praise Atlantic Street for is that they always celebrated, celebrate, they continue to, they always celebrate Juneteenth. And that's before it became as widely known and popular as it is today. People weren't always like, people didn't know what Juneteenth was in Seattle. Like, let's be real. So, you know, there weren't a whole lot of organizations that were doing these annual community celebrations. And Atlanta Street Center was. And so, you know, a couple of times throughout my tenure at Atlantic Street Center, I was able to help organize those Juneteenth celebrations that would would happen in the Rainier Beach neighborhood on Rainier and Henderson. And so we'd partner with the Parks Department, with the Rainier Beach Community Center and utilize that plaza on Henderson. And so I would bring the talent you know, of course, like <laughs> I know, you know, when you when you grew up at Lancey Hughes, you know, everybody who does everything. So, you know, that's where I would be able to bring in, you know, DJs, dancers, singers, spoken word artists, drill teams, like anything that you can think of. You know, we would bring in entertainment, but that was also tied into whatever message we were trying to get across when it came to how we celebrated Juneteenth. And so that's something that we did that I would do to kind of bring the arts, arts awareness, I guess I would say. And then the other piece is with our youth programming, you know, we would often do break camps and things like that when the kids weren't in school. And so one, I remember one year I brought in like Top Spin and he did a, a DJing workshop with the school. And these are school age kids. And so he, he brought in all his equipment and taught these kids, you know, the basics of DJing, you know, with the turntables and, and the laptop and the technology. Don't ask me what it is, but he did it with the kids. And then I brought in like Maxie Jamal, who's a dancer and choreographer, and she did um, dance workshops with these kids and taught them some simple choreography that they could perform, learn and perform. 
you know, we've, I think Adelia, she did, I think she might've did Juneteenth. I don't remember if she did a writing workshop, but I would bring in different people to do writing workshops with the kids. And, you know, we even took, when I did the exhibit, co-curated the exhibit at Mohai, we took the kids down to Mohai to see the hip hop exhibit. And so, you know, I was, I, I always like, you know, those kind of parts of my worlds to intertwine, to collide a little bit. And so that was a way to show the, the young people in the community how to engage with art and that it's something that you can do. It's attainable to you. So by bringing people to them, you know, that are that are doing things that they're interested in was really fun for me. And I think it, it left some lasting impressions for those kids. Well, yeah, for sure. It just continues on yeah. because I think that was really that's the, for me. When I think about equity change makers, I, I really think about the things that drive them and the ways that those drivers show up in their engagement mm. in the institutions they work for, companies. I don't care if it's corporate, community, right. whatever, but there's always this thing that's like these internal drivers and they show up in a wide variety of ways. And you were doing it there, mm-hmm. right? Because you've always had this artistic connection yeah. you always will yeah. always have yeah. and and you were able to bring that into that environment so I'm sure it left a lasting impression on those on those folks and, and really the institution probably too because it's not something that they can easily replicate once Jasmine's gone it gets a little harder <laughs> to like you know make those things happen and I think that's really for me that's one of the greatest things and, and one of the greatest gifts around people who really center themselves in the things that they're doing. Because yeah. it's not that you were allowing the institutions to make you do a specific thing. You were like, oh, no, I know that there's value in this. Yeah. And I'm going to show you there's value in this. That's uh, funny. I never, you know, I, I never thought about it that way until you said that. Because one of my best friends still works for Atlantic Street Center. And it's funny that, you know, from time to time she's she calls me and she's like, uh, I'm trying to do this and I need help with this, that, and the other. You, I, you know this thing. You know the dance. Like, give me, I need, you know. And so that's, that's <laughs> it didn't occur to me, but you're, you're right, you right. know, because, yeah, I mean, social services, I don't think that they think necessarily when they think about like art because they it's a mental health focused organization so I think when they think about like art therapy it's just about like drawing or whatever and which is great but that's not the only way for people to be expressive and to release and stuff and so that was my thing was like kids need releases in all kinds of different ways and we have to show them you know that it's more the I can't draw so I can't relate to that so if you ask me to do therapy and to draw then it's gonna be stick figures and it's not gonna be very effective but I can take pictures Mm -hmm. and so if you expose me to photography then there you go I love music if you expose me you know to ways where I can participate in making music or engaging in music then there you go so that I think that that's what's important. Like art is is so vital in just like everything that we do. It's truly multifaceted, yeah. right? And there was a time in my life where I wasn't sure if I would do creative works. Mm-hmm. And and this kind of brings me to, you know, some of the mentors. I know you talked about Steve Sneed mm-hmm. and we've shared some stories around Justin Emeka and just mm-hmm. he was so monumental in my world, you know, him and 
Felicia Loud mm-hmm. and I, I mean Nana Kabibi. I mean we we share so much yeah. in that regard <laughs> because really we're just born and bred at the CD and like we were here and that was you know those are the folks that were around and yeah. they, you know they were pouring into us. But I, I think about the, the time where I tried to kind of get away from the creative field. And I remember, you know, hitting up Justin and I'm like, oh, you know, this this program, you know, these actors, they're not about characterization. I was so into mm-hmm. it. Oh, they don't know what they're doing. Da, 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 da. And I'm going to do something else. I'm going to, you know, become a physician's assistant. <laughs> he just laughed and he was just, you know, he's like, oh, yeah, no. Like, you're one of those people. Like, you will always find a way to bring creativity into your world yeah and I thought he was like I was like no way like you know I know I can be logical and I can do this work right and I look at where I am today and I just laugh at that because you know our our mentors really are, are are folks that I think particularly around arts there's something special about that mentorship relationship because they see you at your fullest yeah when you are creating what are some of the ways that you find that those experiences from your childhood and and young adulthood have now allowed you to have this vision, you know, as you think about programming for Langston Mm -hmm. now. Well, I mean, I just want to say too, isn't it amazing how people see us in ways that we don't see ourselves, (sighs) especially, you know, in our formative times or, you know, when we're trying to figure life out for ourselves and we think we can just snap our fingers and, okay, oh, I'm not going to do this anymore. (laughs) I'm going to go do something else. (laughs) And our people are like, no, you're not. Right. Like you're in, like, this is what you're meant to do. And, and I just find that so amazing. And I'm glad you brought up like those names because yes, you know, exactly the same. Like, those people, in addition to so many more, are the people who who always rooted for and continue to root for us, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter how old we are, how far along in life we are. Those people are still like, you're doing a good job. All I need to, I don't need you to t- go into detail about how I'm doing it. But for, for certain people to be like, I see what you're doing and you're doing a good job. That's validation for me because I know that they know what it's taking. Yeah. Everybody isn't, you know, there are people who'd be like, oh, that's great. You're awesome, whatever. But they don't really know what it takes. And so it's kind of surfacy yeah. when it's like, you know, people think that working in the arts is just all fun. And it's not, mm-hmm. you know, I'm an arts administrator. I'm not an artist mm-hmm. necessarily. So this is not easy work. Working with artists is hard. <laughs> Let's be clear. <laughs> They don't be on time. They don't communicate. God bless all you artists because it's your creativity that drives so much of, you know, what we do. But, you know, (laughs) it's difficult. It's it's, it's challenging. And so, you know, people like Steve, who really just were an example and they didn't. It was never like this. Never. I can't recall any time where any of those people were like. You have to be this way or you have to do things this way in order to be successful or to do, you know, make it here, you know, whatever. They just led by example. They were just examples. Steve Sneed was an exemplary example of a leader Mm. in a community space. And so when I think about how I want young people especially to feel 
when they engage with programs or not even programs, just coming into Langston Hughes, when they talk to me, (laughs) wherever I'm at, I want them to feel the way Steve Snead made me feel, which was welcome, accepted. I always had a place. And that's one thing Steve made sure of. He never turned any young person away. And you know how it was (laughs) up here when we were teenagers. It was a little rough. It's sometimes unsavory. (laughs) You know, we everybody wasn't doing all the right things. And if they came into Langston Hughes when Steve Sneed was there, he welcomed them. He never made them feel shame about who they were or what they were doing. You know, he got to know them, even in the slightest of ways, to, you know, figure out if he can make a space for them there. You know, one example I, I give a lot is that, you know, everybody's not a performer, right? Everybody doesn't have a desire to perform. And so that's one thing to be able to come and engage in like the teen musicals and plays and things like that. But what if you're interested in light design, Mm -hmm. sound, set? He would get to know people in ways where he could kind of just figure out how their brain worked and be like, I got something for you to do. And then there were young people running lights for shows, like major shows. It didn't have to be just the the youth shows. It was whatever productions were happening. And so it's things like that, that that's a legacy that I want to carry on. You know, I don't want that to be lost within what Langston, what Langston Hughes Performing Arts Institute is. And then, of course, you know, you mentioned like Justin Emeka, Felicia Lau. You know, we got Darcel Hayes. We got Rico Bembry. Mm-hmm. Cherie Saretze, like so many people who were just there, like you said, pouring into us, you know, and really becoming family. Justin is not my friend. That is my brother. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? He's been my brother since I don't, you know, however old I was. Like, that's my brother. And so, you know, his kids are my my nephews, my godsons. You know what I mean? And so it's that kind of thing where you you become so close in a space that's meant for us, that we're supposed to be in, where we can explore our creativity, express ourselves, be who we are, who we want to be, and come together in community. And then what what becomes of that? Like, we're all family, <laughs> like, for real, for real. And they're continuing to support us. And so, you know, like I said, those people coming back to this day and being like, wow, you know, especially the elders who really kind of laid a foundation and have seen things kind of be rocky from time to time for them to say, this is great. Like, I really like what you're doing or I appreciate what you're doing means a lot because I I hope that that indicates to them that their work isn't lost, like they didn't do it for no reason. Mm-hmm. You know, we were paying attention even when we were cutting up. <laughs> I always have to insert that because I'm no angel, okay? <laughs> well, you know what? You're right. There's a lifelong lasting impression that those formidable years really have on us. Mm-hmm. And I think about all of the things I was able to do in the creative space that, you know, I when I was trying to, like, I was hitting my head in the corporate world, mm-hmm. right? Because I was like, 
how is it that all of this experience, you don't understand the value of it, Mm -hmm. right? And there was this thing for me because I was so poured into that I always knew the value of it, right? And I think I was working through a lot of that to get to a space where I was able to utilize the knowledge I gained through those experiences to benefit the current thing I was doing. And that's where I had some of my own struggles in my career when I think about, you know, forming myself as a person who was like, I know I'm a creative, but I guess I'll do this bit right now. You know, I know that that's always there. How can I infuse it in where I am, just like you were doing at Atlantic Street Center? Same thing. And I think that there's so much that I carry with me from that time frame of just being able to create and perform and, Mm -hmm. you know, and be, you know, inspiration for others. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's really When I think about equity, you know, for me, that's really one of the things that is a constant driver for me because I realize that there's a lot of things that we may do, particularly in black communities Mm -hmm. that, you know, inherently it's almost all equity work because you know what I mean? It it, it wasn't like, Hey, here's the pathway. This is just, you know, it's all laid out for you. You just, you don't know. There's so much that you're doing in terms of like building it brick by brick to understand like, this isn't just about me doing something that's great or producing a great show. Right. But it's about me also being able to utilize my opportunities and my leverage in any way I can to provide that space to showcase this brilliance, right? Particularly in arts. And so I know you have a real specific lens about how you approach a lot of the programming that you Mm -hmm. guys are doing right now out of Langston. What are some of the things that you really are excited for that you guys have done? You guys have been doing some amazing things there in terms of the shows, programming. You guys have some reoccurring partnerships. I know you mentioned this to your sisters, but there's so much that you guys are producing. Really, it's it's phenomenal that you guys have had such a small team (laughs) (laughs) All these years with with the output that you're giving into community. But what are some of those things that really are constant drivers for you? Yeah, I mean, we were able to, you know, obviously take on the film festival, you know, so that was created out of the the folks that were running the Langston Hughes Performing Arts Institute several years ago with some community members and they decided to start this what they what was then called the Langston Hughes African American Film Festival and when and of course so it was supported through Langston Hughes and so when that transition happened and Langston Hughes was no longer you know the city essentially was no longer doing programming then it was important to us as the nonprofit that we pick that up so that that program could be maintained because it's one of the most, I feel like it is probably one of the most popular and known programs that has come out of Langston. And so this year was year 18. And so we rebranded it a couple of years ago and changed the name to Seattle Black Film Festival for a number of reasons. Uh, one of which, you know, Langston Hughes African American Film Festival is a mouthful. <laughs> And we wanted the the focus on it to be that it's a black film festival in Seattle. Mm-hmm. There's no other black film festival in Seattle. And so we, you know, while the Langston Hughes name is important, the connection outside of Seattle wouldn't make sense, mm-hmm. right? When we're trying to connect with the filmmaker community, the film lover community, you know what I mean? Just the film community in general, what that kind of wouldn't make necessarily makes sense. And so having a name that's shorter and that's straight to the point, Seattle Black Film Festival is like, oh, 
you know, people are always like, there's black people in Seattle? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we do a film festival. Right. And by the way, we got this organization called Langston where we do so much more. So the film festival is one of those things, while it is a lot, <laughs> <laughs> it is a lot of work. It's really fulfilling, and especially the way that we've been able to kind of grow it as the nonprofit. And over this, you know, COVID period, doing two virtual festivals now and moving forward, doing having some virtual aspect to it and all of our programs from here on out is really, really meaningful. And then, you know, we we have had this partnership with Seattle International Film Festival, SIF, to do youth filmmaking workshops, which our series is now starting again. So we have some starting up this Saturday, and then we'll do some in October, and then a Thanksgiving one as well. We've been able to engage young people in filmmaking. And just the real basic, we you know, they're grouped with adult mentor teaching artists and it's called Crash because it's basically a crash course in filmmaking where they, they get together in their groups. They determine what it is their story is going to be. And then they get to storyboard, figure out well, who's going to do what, who's going to shoot, who's going to act, who's going to edit, who's going to do all the things within like their five or six person group of kids and their mentor. And then they go out and shoot. And then at the end of the day, you know, they edit it, do all that. And at the end of the day, they present their short films. And so we're really excited to continue that and then kind of see what develops out of that, working with more community-based people to continue to provide that kind of programming. No shade to SIF because they really helped us get that started. But the purpose of them helping us to get that started was to pass it on to us so that we can continue it on with or without them. And so that's the process that we're looking at probably starting next year is how can we really just make this a fully like community involved black, you know, program from from top to bottom. Mm-hmm. So really excited about that and having that as an ongoing youth program. And then, as you know, we're still trying to figure out how we can engage youth in other ways. And, you know, that's a challenge to an extent. But I think as we continue to grow our offerings, both virtually and in person, we're going to be able to kind of expand our reach and reach people in unique ways. And so there's been a lot of ideas on how to reach young people, of course, through technology. I don't know TikTok and things like that, but I know that YouTube, all that, like, but that's the way to get them. And so bringing in the experts who know how to work with young people on that level and, and you know, getting them to make, you know, short, like be, be content creators, mm-hmm. essentially. And so we're looking forward to being able to, to hopefully launch some different types of programming like that. And then, like you said, you know, our ongoing partnerships, Sierra Sisters, Restoration of the Arts. Gosh, I mean, we out here with Michael B. Main. There's so many. I mean, and then we have, you know, kind of we we do programming with Seattle Public Library, Ellie Bay Books, do a lot of literary events. We have some coming up this fall. Seattle Theater Group. I mean, the list goes on. Yeah, and, you guys just produced Earshot. Let the stream speak, too. <laughs> yes. And then, and then that one. Yes. And then that yes. one. Um, that's one of our favorite ones. One of our favorite programs. And it's really, you know, not only because of what the program is, which is so phenomenal, but the people. Mm-hmm. The people who, who are involved in that project are just incredible Black women. 
And I always like, you know I mean, real talk, like black women, we're just kind of at the foundation of everything. If you really think about it, yeah. like look at everything that's going on. Who, who's who's the reason why? <laughs> you know, it's us. And so let the stream speak with, you know, the driving force, the visionary being, you know, the in the incomparable mm-hmm. Dr. Maxine Mims and then Lisa and Mona Terry, Tonda Hill. They're just greatness in in what they do to produce that event is just amazing. I mean, like the music already, right? Like and black people just playing these strings instruments so be- and and composing. It's just some of the most beautiful music you'll ever hear. And then the intention when they talk about the you know the themes that they put together when they're doing these annual productions and and what those themes mean to them and what they're trying to tell us through the music is just incredible. And so we really, really love being able to co-present that, that production every year because it's just, you know, I love kind of this, this different, like, out of the box, like, you know, just because it's black don't mean it's always hip hop or yeah. it's always our, which we're great at, <laughs> but we're also great at everything else, yeah. everything else. Right. And so putting those things on display, you know, putting black writers on display, mm. you know, authors and, and things like that. Like, that's what I really love is like, you know, we want to show you a little something different. And sometimes I know that that can be, a little uncomfortable for folks and I think that that's been my personal challenge is like what what's wrong with y'all come come be this is amazing yeah. you know but it takes a little bit of finessing to to get people to understand like this is also incredible yeah and and you should be a part of it you know well the, the great thing about it is that there's been so much programming honestly that is changing the game when you think about how intentional you have to be to build up to what people's expectations may be of what it is. And I think that that's really so key to it when we talk about what are some of those drivers. And I just love that that you just described a wealth of programming that is attacking people and touching people wherever they may be. And then also bringing them in if they're a little bit on the outside of it, like, well, this is what this looks like and this is how you can engage with it. But so much of that, goes back to that tagline of cultivating mm-hmm. black brilliance. Mm-hmm. And when we think about that, there's been all of these changes with the neighborhood and the demographics of the neighborhood and connecting with black youth is not necessarily as easy as it was back in our day, right? We we, we were just already here. Yeah. You know, it was like, that was like the neighborhood place to go after school and stuff. Like you said, there was after school program. There was a lot of uh, black people here in the central district, but not only is it the changing of the demographics, but now we have the pandemic Mm -hmm. so it's kind of this like multi-pronged litany of things you have to actually deal with and maneuver through in order to even produce some of these things and how are you dealing with that and dealing with you know the fact that now connecting is different you just talked about digitization Mm -hmm. right you talked Mm -hmm. about the partnership with SIF I think those are some of the ways that really speak to it but this pandemic is shaking us all up and when we think about how we keep an equity lens on the ways that that we're engaging with community, it takes a different approach right now. 
Yeah, I mean, I think the pandemic like pushed us forward to something that we were already trying to get to. But in our minds, we're like, we're working on it. You know, we were kind of like sluggishly like, okay, we got to figure out how we can also present our programs virtually, Mm -hmm. how we can also live stream while people are in the building as well. And so we have been talking about that pre-pandemic and then the pandemic hit and it was like, oh, okay, so we got to figure this out. And so that's what we did. And so I guess, you know, the beauty in it, if you will, is that we've been able to figure that out and continue to figure that out because it's really important to be able to meet people where they're at. And that has been really helpful for me because, as you know, like the frustration is because we're not here, like we were trying to think out of the box, like how do we get people here? And how do you plan a program? You know, there's so many things that go into thinking about how you're going to plan your program or a little event. Like, okay, well, if we do it in the evening and it's on the weekday, then you got to think about the fact that people work and they might work downtown, but they might live in federal way. So they're going to have to go home, get their kids situated, make dinner, and then think about if they want to drive back to Seattle for an hour and a half program and then drive back, you know, all that. And that's really a lot of the reason that People weren't like the butts weren't in seats. The black butts, mm-hmm. let's be clear, weren't in seats because there was plenty of other people who taking up space. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not, you know, it's like I'm not I'm not all mad at it, but is we're not doing it for them. Yeah. And so, you know, when we're selling tickets or offering a program and it's all the people who it's not necessarily intended for, like you're welcome to it, but it's not for you. That rubs me because then it's like, I'm doing all this work for the benefit of, you know, the people that look like me and then everybody else is sitting in the room. Mm -hmm. And so being able to offer our programs virtually as much as possible really helps to alleviate that a little bit. But you know, that's one of the, that's just what we're doing is that we're looking at it like that. Like this is now our pivot. You know, life isn't the same anymore. And that whole thing of like getting back to normal, normal wasn't good anyway. Mm-hmm. So let's figure out our new normal and figure out how to better approach what we do so that we can make sure that we're hitting who we want to hit. And so it's an ongoing thing that we're, that we've been working on. And then also, like you said, you know, I really, appreciate that you know as much as I can't stand this phrase it is very true black people aren't a monolith (laughs) it's such an annoying because it was like overused and it's just like okay we get it but it's also very true you know what I mean and so you know we're not focused on any one one thing because blackness is everything and so we want everybody to feel comfortable to engage either in person, however we're offering this program, this event, whatever, to feel comfortable to participate and feel like it was meant for them. So that's always like a driving factor as well. Like for me, it's just like my my only bottom line, my only like non-negotiable is that it's Black people. (laughs) (laughs) Beyond that, however else you identify is it doesn't matter yeah. as long as you're black, yeah. <laughs> you know, because we're centering you. Yeah. So be be black and great, mm-hmm. you know, and, and and come participate in greatness. That's what I hope. That's how that feels for people. 
Well, I think you're doing a great job because I've been the recipient of this. <laughs> and I got to tell you, there's so much intentionality in the ways that you're shaping programming there at Langston. I've said it already several times, but just such a perfect person in the <laughs> job you're doing. And and literally that centering of Blackness really is that equity piece for me because there's enough things that are for everyone else. Yeah. There's enough things that are like, hey, we're just, it's, no, we, we really needed to understand and feel that sense of agency and ownership when we come into space, when we're on logging on to these programs virtually, when we're thinking about crafting programs that are going to be specific toward our youth there's a different way that we do it when we're when we're that intentional and, and there should be there should be no shame not to cut you off right. but there should be no shame in being able to say that yeah and that's what i'm trying to remove from this situation and so i'm very clear so you know when people approach me to partner you know where do black people like yeah. would it you know or just be very clear like are you wanting to partner with us because you don't have a black audience mm. right and you need to diversify your, you know, your audience, or, you know, whatever the reasons are. But let's let's be clear. Let's be honest. And then let's figure out if it's something that's mutually beneficial, because if it doesn't benefit our folks, you know, then there's no reason for us to move any further. And so, you know, that's usually one of my questions. Does your program center black arts audiences or artists? Nice. No. OK, well. You might want to go talk to somebody else. Yeah. I won't name no names. Yeah. But, you know. <laughs> but there's plenty of other places That's that right. you can go. That's right. You know, and, and so, you know, our spots, our, our stuff is far and few in between. And so we have to we have to hold on to that. And so that's what I really appreciate that the city did was say, OK, we're, we're backing away from doing the program so that the, the city politics don't have to be you know, spilled into that yeah. an independent nonprofit, we can say we are a black arts organization and this is what we do. And, and the politics piece isn't relevant to how we do our work. We define how we do our work. And so that's been really, really great for me because, you know, I've been in other situations where it's like, well, oh yeah, I think about all the funders or you might you might offend a funder if you say Black Lives Matter or something like that, and it's like, but they what? <laughs> You're not even that doesn't compute to me. Yeah, you know, and so we don't have to we don't have to shy away from any of that, and I love it. I love it. I mean, just being who I am, it's like, oh yeah, I can't do anything else. Yeah, there we go. I can't imagine going backwards and doing anything that's not about Black folks. Yeah, yeah. You know that really. Leads me to, I guess, my last question, really, Jasmine. You know, when we think about the the the, the enormity, <laughs> right, of of what Langston has always been, how you're continuing on, we also think about the legacy you're leaving and mm. how people are going to remember all of the love and care and intentionality. That, oh my God, I'm getting emotional. <laughs> it happens to me every time. Every time. <laughs> every time. Every time. Because it's so much and you're doing so well. <laughs> what is that for you when you think about your legacy that you're leaving at length? I, you know, I don't, I don't, I have not put a lot of thought into my personal legacy, I guess. I want just what I do 
to speak for itself so that black people now and for years to come can always go into that space or identify with that space and the organization as belonging to them. It's ours, right? Like that's what's important to me. And I think that that was instilled in me through, again, Steve Sneed, through my mother, through the people in the community who made us feel when we were young and growing up that that place belonged to us and that we were welcome to be whoever we wanted to be in or outside of that place. And so for anybody that's black that because that's my focus is that I, I just want I want them to always know that it belongs to them. And so anything that I have done, am doing or will continue to do while I am involved in this organization in any capacity, that's what I want to leave behind is that is the or like it leave length. It's ours like. So, yeah, it's I, don't, I can't think of from, you know, I don't need people to be talking about me necessarily, but talk about you don't have to say my name. Just say, you know, how great X, Y, Z event program, class, workshop, Zoom call, <laughs> whatever <laughs> it was, was how it impacted you, how it made a difference. That's it. And if I had anything to do with it, then great. <laughs> Jasmine, you're phenomenal. I've said it so many times. Just truly such a bright star. And I'm so thankful to know you and to, to be able to call you my sis, to be in this work with you. It is, uh, it's just phenomenal. I so thank you for giving us your time today because... As I said, I, I knew it. And I was just holding on all the way to the end. Don't do it to me. I was all the way to the end. I'm like, oh, no, here it comes. Because I'm just so incredibly impressed with your output. And, you know, honestly, as a, as a, a fellow equity change maker myself, you and I share so many different things. And we've mm-hmm. talked about that passion that drives us. And it's just so evident in your work, in your output, in your approach. And the fact that you stay relational through it all, because that for me is what I think black brilliance is really about. It's because we understand foundationally that if we don't have those relationships, what do we have? Yep. If I can't go to my community and be embraced in love, what am I doing? Right. If if I've done something that's going to rub folks the wrong way, I'm doing the wrong thing. Yeah. Right. And I just appreciate your approach, your your brilliance, your your care, your love for all of us. Thank you so much. How can folks, you know, get in contact with the programs you guys have going on? If they're looking to, you know, participate or collab with you, how can they get in touch with Langston? So our website is langstonseattle.org. We're on Facebook as Langston Seattle. Instagram, 206 Langston. Twitter, Langston Seattle. 
I'm Jasmine at LangstonSeattle.org. Everybody might not know how to spell my name, but that's okay. Go to the website. You'll find me (laughs) and you can email me through there. But yeah, connect with us. Subscribe to our newsletter. That's how you can stay up to date with what we have going on. And then, yeah, I mean, not to, we had our mush moment (laughs) while back, but I mean, I can't, I can't sign off without also just, just showing you love and appreciation and also giving you your flowers as well. Like mm-hmm. I'm big on that, you know, cause I don't know, I don't feel like there's ever enough of that. You know, we miss the mark sometimes in our community because everybody's just going, going, going. And sometimes we don't take the time to just stop and say, you're dope. <laughs> or, you know what I'm saying? Like you inspire me too. And I, I think, you know, when we talked before, you know, and and when I brought up how, you know, you can relate to how difficult this work and challenging, you know, this work can be at times, it's really special to know for real that there are people out there who get it mm-hmm. and who see you for real. And I just like mutually like everything that you said about me, I can say about you times 10, like, I, I when I think about you, I'm like, this has got to be the hard, hardest working black woman in Seattle because I don't. When do you take a break? Like, you know, when you heard me talking about how am I taking care of a girl? Let me buy you a massage or something because a spa day, something because you're you're grinding. I mean, you're you're everywhere. Like, I'm a little exhausted, and I and I'm just and part of my taking care of myself is saying I don't have to be everywhere, and and that's just me. You're everywhere, girl. I mean, with consistent energy, right? With with consistent love for the community. And there's not a lot of people who do that and can do that and be genuine. You know when it's authentic and you know when it ain't. And one thing about you is that you you're always authentic. And so, I mean, listen, you're doing this podcast, you're doing the morning update show, you're doing another show, you're doing all this. You're at all the community things. You're you know, you you did you did our thing for strings. I mean, you're doing so many things. And so, you know. If nobody else is t- it will tell you, I'm going to tell you, I appreciate you. And I also want to make sure that you are taking care of yourself and taking time to just to just sit back and enjoy your flowers, too. Aww, right. Yes. Let's not wear ourselves down. We got to take right. care of us in order to take care of the rest of the community. That's right. It's the only way. So. <laughs> it's the only way. I love you so much. So, so much. You're Mush amazing. Fest. Mush fest indeed. Like, I, I told Julia, I said, it's going to happen. It's good because this is my girl. And I, I'm just so elated that we got this all recorded because, again, you know, for me, it's how can we be making sure that the legacies we're building are are, are there and being captured in real time, yeah. right? So again, I just thank you for everything you've said. It's 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 a mutual love, you know this. It is. It really I mean, is. I think I told you before. I mean, I don't want to belabor this, but it's just like there are times when I'm just like, nah, I'm good. <laughs> like a few times a year, I'm like, you know what? Y'all don't appreciate this work that I'm doing. I'm trying to do this for you. And, and like you said, when you were like, I had a moment where I'll just be a medicalist. Like right. I was, I think I had put a post and I was like, you know what? Y'all like base. I'ma just go be a basic, uh, yeah. <laughs> instead of doing this art stuff because 
you know, I could just live my life, go work a nine to five, come home, play with my dog, yeah. make dinner and do it again the next day. But that's not it's not in us to to do that. Right. Yeah. That we're just not built for that. And so, you know, within that, like to we have to see each other you know what I'm saying because it's it's just not easy it's just not easy it looks easy but it's not yeah, yeah the, the, the right vessels large. make it look easy but right. you're right <laughs> you're right it's not it's not it's exhausting so thank you thank you and thank you you know again for just for inviting me to to run my mouth I mean come on I mean come on absolutely hands down man hands down you guys heard it here Jasmine Scott one of the great equity change makers not just in Seattle but really throughout our region just killing the game with her love and care for this community and bringing all of that and that passion and that amazing family legacy Mm -hmm. to bear in our arts community Jasmine Scott of Langston thank you again so much for being with us thank you Wow. Wow. You guys, stay tuned because you guys know we keep it coming with Equity Changemakers every chance we get. This local season is blowing my mind, season two, because I actually know these people. I get to be in community with them. And as you just heard there, there's such a mutual love because that's what it takes for us to actually be together, be in community, and continue to love on one another. Thank you guys for listening to this episode of Equity Rising, season two.